Okay, so today, Romans 7, verses 7 to 12 is our text. And just to kind of forewarn you, you're going to have to kind of track with me because um, I'm going to try to give you the structure of the book so that you can see the flow of thought of the author. Um, and so you're going to have to use your, your, your minds, you're going to have to track with me and think with me, but if you do that, I'm, I think that you're going to be able to have a, a better understanding of this book. Okay? But before we actually even read it, let's go ahead and just ask God's blessing, His help. Lord, we come to you through Jesus and we pray for the help of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for His teaching ministry in the body of Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we open up this word, that He would instruct and make things clear that are not clear, that we would see what Paul was communicating 2,000 years ago, and that, Lord, it would help us today in our lives to reach others for Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For, apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now folks, if we are going to understand the book of Romans, we need to understand that it's really simply an unfolding of the gospel. That's what Romans is about. Paul gives us the theme of the letter in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. There's the theme of the entire letter. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed through faith. And if you follow those themes, that's what the whole book is about. Now, in this book, Paul's going to do three different things related to the gospel. Number one, he's going to explain the gospel, and he does that in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, an explanation of the gospel. Then he's going to give us the implications of the gospel. Okay, so if we are saved and are the righteousness of God through this good news, what does that mean about my daily life? How do I live that out? What implications does it have? And then the third thing he does is that he deals with objections that arise to this teaching of the gospel of grace. Now, Romans 1 through 5, an explanation of the gospel. But right after chapters 1 through 5, we have chapters 6 and 7. And what Paul is doing there is he's dealing with objections to what he's just taught about the gospel. So really, you could take out chapter 6 and 7, and you could 
go from chapter 5, verse 21, and start in chapter 8, verse 1, and there would be no hitch. Because chapter 6 and 7 are like a parenthesis. You can remove that from his argument. Those are... Those are chapters where he helps you to understand difficulties that arise from his teaching. But you could take those chapters out and go straight from 5 to 8, and you'd have no uh, difficulty at all understanding his flow of thought. So, chapter 6 and 7 are objections to the gospel of grace. Now let's go to chapter 6, and notice an objection. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, why would Paul even ask that question? Why? What does the objection arise from? It arises from something he said two verses earlier. In verse 20, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound or may increase? Do you see the connection? So chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 14 is his answer to the objection that arises from chapter 5, verse 20. Are we straight on that so far? All right. But there are two objections that have come up in chapter 6. The next one is in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now where does that objection arise from? It arises from the verse directly preceding it, Romans 6.14, which says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So someone could say, okay, great, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. That must mean that I don't have to worry about whether I keep God's law at all. I don't have to worry about um, overcoming sin because I'm under grace. Isn't that wonderful? So Paul has to make sure that his people don't misunderstand what he's just said in Romans 6.14. So verses 15 to 23 are his answer to the objection that will arise because of 6.14. Romans 5.20 brings Romans 6.1 to 14. Romans 6.14 brings us Romans 6.15 to 23. Well, we come to chapter 7, and he's got this whole exposition in verses 1 to 6 about how we used to be married to the law, but now we've died, and now we are married to Christ. Why did he bring that up? Where, where did that come from? It came from 6.14, where he said, You are not under law, but you're under grace. You're not under law. And so he has to explain why they're not under law anymore. How did it come about that we're not under law? What he means is under the jurisdiction of the law, under the dominion of the law. You don't have the same relationship to the law that you used to have when you were unconverted. You're in a whole different realm than you used to be. And so he tells us in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, it's like we once were married to the law. We were in this covenant relationship with it. And we couldn't get out of this marriage, even though we were miserable in it, because the law was never going to die, and the law was never going to be unfaithful, so we couldn't divorce the law. But God provided a different solution. We died to the law. The law didn't die. We did. We died by being united to Christ. When he died on the cross, we died with him to the law and to sin. And now we've entered into this whole different relationship to the law than we had before. That's why... He gives us chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It's to answer 6.14, to help us understand how we are not under law. 
Okay, well that brings us to chapter 7, verse 7. And before I do that, let me just say this. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. <laughs> um, when we come to chapter 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And you're thinking, what a weird question. Is the law sin? Where, how did it even come up with that question? Well, it, as it always occurs, it, it comes up by something he just got done saying. Verse 5. In verse 5 he said, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Here Paul says that the law stirred up sinful passions within us. So does that mean somehow that the law is sinful if it stirs up these sinful passions within us? Okay? You see, he's, he's drawing a connection between something he just said in verse 5, and now he's got to answer that, and he does so in verses 7 through 12. Now, in all of these different objections that we've been looking at, Paul's got a consistent pattern of how he deals with them. He'll ask the question, which is the, the question the objector has. I'll just give you one for example. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Okay. He asks the question. Then he says, may it never be. Right? Then he gives a short, concise answer. And then he gives us a longer, expanded answer. And then usually he'll sum it up at the very end. And that's his consistent way of dealing with all these objections. So we've got one in 6.1, one in 6.15. We've got one here in chapter 7, verse 7. And we're going to have another one in 7, verse 13. So I want to help you see how the book of or Romans 7, how Romans 7 is structured. After the first six verses, where Paul teaches us that we have been released from the law because we've died with Christ, he deals with two different objections. And that's going to take us through the rest of the chapter. The first objection is, is the law sin? That comes in verse 7. His answer is verses 7 to 12, and he sums it up in verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. When you hear that, that little phrase, so then, what does that make you think of? What does that imply? So then, here's the answer. Here's the summation. Here's the conclusion to my argument. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping this up and putting a bow around it. 7 to 12 are a unit. <laughs> and the answer summarized is in verse 12. No, the law is not sin. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's the answer to verse 7. Verse 13, he picks up another question. Now, if we don't get this structure right, we're going to come up with a different interpretation of Romans 7. That's why I'm dealing with this. In verse 13, the question is, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Now, why in the world would he ask that question? Well, it's because of what he just said in verses 9, 10, and 11, where he says that when the commandment came, that he died. So was, was it the law that was the cause of death for me? And so he takes verses 13 to 25 to answer that question. And he says, no, it's not the law. It's the sin which is inside of you. Is, that's the real cause of death. The law is just the instrument that the sin used to bring about your death. And then he comes to the very end in verse 25, and he says, so then... Hear the phrase? Here's the summation. Here's the conclusion. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. So, verses 1 to 6, we died to the law. 
Verses 7 to 12, the law is not sin. It's holy, righteous, and good. Verses 13 to 25, is the law the cause of death? No, sin is the real cause of death. Now, I don't have to deal with the hard part today. (laughs) The hard part of this chapter is verses 13 to 25. And this is where we get all the different viewpoints. And um, so... Pastor Jerome's going to be preaching the next two Sundays, and I'll give me some time to try to get my get ready for the hard one, which is coming. But today, we're going to deal with verses 7 to 12. Verse 7, is the law sin? Answer, may it never be. Short answer, on the contrary, I would not have even come to know sin except through the law, for I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And then in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, he expands on that answer, and then he gives us a summary in verse 12. So today, we're going to focus on verse 7, and we're going to focus on this question of Paul's, is the law sin? Now, when he says law, he's talking about the Old Testament law here. Do you know how we know that's the law he's talking about? Well, it's because he quotes one of them in verse 7, and the law he quotes is the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet is part of the 10 commandments, which is a summary of the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. So when Paul says, is the law sin, he's talking about the Old Testament law summarized in the 10 commandments. Is that sin? Or is that somehow sinful because it arouses our sinful passions? And of course his answer is, may it never be. And then as we work through this passage, we're going to see that Paul teaches us three things about the law. Number one, it exposes our sin. Two, it arouses our sinful passions. Number three, it kills our self-righteousness. Those are the three truths that that come to us from his teaching. So first of all, it exposes our sin. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, May it never be, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So far from being sin, the law isn't sin, the law exposes our sin. The law reveals it to us. If it weren't for the law, Paul said, I, I wouldn't even know about this sin of coveting. It would never occur to me that I'm sinning every time I covet. If the law had not told me, you shall not covet. Now, interestingly, Paul selects the 10th commandment here. He doesn't say, I would never have known about sin if the law had not said, you shall not murder, or you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not steal. Those are pretty self-evident truths. But he chooses the one that is different from all the other nine. The first nine commandments have to do with outward actions, right? Committing adultery, stealing, lying, uh, not honoring your father and mother. Those are outward actions. He chooses the one that deals with the mind and the heart, the inner attitudes of a man's heart. And Paul learned that his evil thoughts were just as sinful as his evil deeds, in Philippians 3, 6, he said, he's describing his former life, and he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Well, not before God, he wasn't blameless, but before his peers and his Jewish fellow men, he said, they couldn't, they couldn't convict me of anything. They looked at my life, and they said, yeah, he keeps the law. Well, except for coveting. <laughs> 
Because, yeah, he could keep these outward things. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't murder anyone. He wasn't stealing or lying. He was, he was obeying his parents. But when it came to coveting, Paul said, no, I, I was a sinner. There was covetous going on within my mind and in my heart. Paul wasn't guilty of the grosser sins, but he was convicted of the inner sin of his heart. Outwardly, his life was comparatively blameless compared with other people. But when he compared himself with God's holiness and God's standards, he was found guilty. And remember, Paul was an expert in the law. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisee's whole life was wrapped up in understanding the law. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they knew the law, but they knew the letter of the law. And the, the law had to come to them with its spiritual intent and its spiritual power. Just like Pastor Jerome was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he showed us how Jesus took the law and, and brought it out in its spiritual aspect. In other words, it's not okay if you just refrain from committing adultery if you're lusting after other women. You see, there's a spiritual intent to the law. It's not okay if you're not murdering someone if you're still angry and hateful towards others. There's this spiritual intent. And when that spiritual intent of the law came to Paul and the Holy Spirit opened up his mind to see what was going on in his mind and heart, Paul said, I died. I was convicted. I was brought into judgment. It's the same thing that he told us back in chapter 3, verse 20. There he said, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now all of us tend to cover up our sin. We tend to excuse our sin, or camouflage our sin, or deny our sins. And uh, we come by it honestly because our first parents, Adam and Eve, did the very same thing the instant that they fell. Do you remember in the garden? Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. God came to Adam. Have you eaten of that tree which I told you not to eat? Well, well, Lord, the woman you gave me, she gave to me that fruit and I ate. So he blames it on the woman, but even goes a step further and kind of blames it on God for giving him the woman. <laughs> it was her fault and really kind of, Lord, it's your fault because you gave me the woman. <laughs> and then so the Lord comes to the woman did you eat of that fruit that I told you not to eat? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It was the devil's fault, Lord, not mine. You see, from the very beginning, this blame-shifting thing came through Adam and Eve, and it's filtered down, and we instinctively do this. It's our default action. Whenever we are confronted with something wrong that we've done, is to defend ourselves or to shift the blame or... We were born that way, and it takes a miracle of grace to root that thing out of us. It's so ingrained within us. And I, I see this with my employees. I won't name any names, and you don't know their names anyway. <laughs> but, oh, I see, it drives me crazy. Um, we came back from Texas, and there was, I, I, just so you know, I own a window and gutter cleaning company. So I entrusted my company to my employees while I was gone, hoping that everything would go smooth. We had eight customer complaints and go-backs in six days while I was gone. So the, the wheels fell off the chariot. You know, I came back in and go, oh, we, we had a, an emergency staff meeting to deal with all these problems. And one customer had emailed me and told me exactly what happened. 
where she had a certain part of her gutter that she wanted cleaned and the technician that was sent out there was making all kinds of excuses and reasons why he couldn't do the job because he didn't want to do it. it. It's a, it's a, yeah, just nobody likes to do these kinds of gutters. You can hardly stick your finger in. So he was making all these reasons to the customer. Well, I can't get on the roof because it'll cave in and my ladder's not good enough. And she says, well, I've got a ladder. You can use mine. Well, okay, but I might cut my fingers, so I better not do it. Well, maybe you can put some gloves on. Well, all right. So all of his excuses were being overturned by the customer. So in this emergency staff meeting, I confront that employee and said, you know, it's really bad customer service. You're supposed to be out there saying, whatever you want, I'm here to do it. <laughs> and he said, she's lying. A hundred percent lies. Everything she's just said to you is a lie. And I thought, you know, he's the only one that believes that that story that he's telling. I don't believe that story <laughs> she, because the customer had nothing to win by bringing this to, to my attention. She wasn't asking for a refund. She wasn't asking for anything. She just wanted me to know as the owner what's happening when I'm not there on a job. And that, that employee was fired last week. So there was another situation this, this last week was a doozy for my company. <laughs> um, there was another employee who had had three different people call us, call the office and say, there's this guy driving around in your company vehicle and he's driving recklessly. He's an unsafe driver. When he merges on to the freeway, he's pushing people out of his way and speeding up. And, and then we got another one. After the first three, I said, you can't drive a company vehicle anymore. I'm sorry, but you're, I just can't allow it. And then after six weeks of taking away that privilege, he said, if you just give me one more chance, I guarantee you it'll never happen again. I said, okay, I'll give you one more chance. Two days later, we got a call. This guy is driving recklessly. He's trying, he was, he was emerging onto the freeway. He was trying to run me over. And so I had to go to him and say, I'm sorry, but you can't drive forever again. <laughs> There's going to be no more chances after this one. And his response was, well, that's just ridiculous what they're telling you. That's just petty. He came up with four or five reasons why what he did was wrong. I mean, what, what he did was right, and everything that they said was wrong. I thought, can you be serious? After four of these, I've never had any other complaints about drivers in 19 years of owning my company. He's got four in about one year, and he says, they're all lies. Everything they say is ridiculous. They're all being petty. Can he be serious? <laughs> and the scripture that came to my mind is Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I didn't tell him that scripture because I thought that was just going to make things even worse. But that's what was going around in my head. And society today loves to take things in the Bible that are labeled as sin and give them a new label. Have you ever thought about that? Like today... No one's ever called a drunkard anymore, although the Bible calls someone who overindulges in alcohol a drunkard. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and says he won't inherit the kingdom. What do we call people today? Alcoholics. And an alcoholic is someone who has a disease, right? Their disease is alcoholism. So they're not really guilty of anything. You can't be guilty for having a disease. It's like getting cancer. No one's guilty of getting cancer. So we've taken away any blame where the Bible squarely puts the blame on the person who overindulges in alcohol and they calls him a drunkard. Or let's take another one. The Bible calls people liars 
if they tell lies. And today we might say, well, he's just an extrovert with an over-imaginative imagination. <laughs> That's all he is. He's not a liar. The Bible calls people adulterers. But today people say, well, they just had an affair. Or they just went and had a fling with somebody. Now, an affair doesn't sound like a very bad thing to do, does it? Or having a fling? It sounds like something's kind of fun. Let's go have a fling, you know? But the Bible says, no, you've committed adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So our society loves to remove blame from things and call it by another name. It's kind of like someone go, going around in the store seeing those bottles that have the big poison label on them and stripping off the label and putting a new one on that says essence of peppermint. <laughs> what would you think of that? That guy's criminal because someone's going to buy that thing and drink it and die. So the law is very, very helpful to us because it won't, get it, it won't allow us to get away with sin. If we will allow the Spirit of God to take the law and apply it to our own lives, it's going to expose us for our sin. But then secondly, the law arouses our sinful passions too. Paul tells us that first off in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now he also goes into this in, in verse 8. He says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And then he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. When the commandment came, sin became alive. When the commandment came to him, sin became alive. It aroused something within him. Some, some sin that was inside of him became alive when the commandment bore upon him. Now how does that work? How does the law arouse sinful passions that are within us? Well, when the law forbids us to do something that's evil, our fallen, corrupt nature instinctively wants to do the opposite. Right? The law says, thou shalt not do this. And you say, oh yeah? Well, let's see about that. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, it's like, um, sin is like a sleeping dog. He's lying there sleeping, and the law is like a cat that walks by that dog and swats at him. And the dog wakes up and starts chasing the cat. Well, the law comes to us, and it swats at us while our sin is sort of asleep. It's not really dead. It's sort of asleep. And the law comes to us, and we wake up and we start chasing after that thing that the law forbids. We tell our kids at dinner time, do not eat your vegetables. I do not want you to eat your vegetables tonight. Now, why do we tell the kids that? Because it's going to inflame the sinful passion to do the exact opposite of what we just told them, right? We laid down the law, and now they're going to want to do the opposite of what we just told them to do. Or the smoker forgets all about his urge to have a cigarette until he sees that sign, right? No smoking. Oh, yeah, we'll see about that. I'll teach you a thing or two about if I should smoke. It's, it's kind of like a, a powerful sports car that when you start it, the engine's really quiet. 
And you don't really know how powerful that car is until you press down on the accelerator. The law is like the accelerator. And when the law presses down against our sin, the engine revs to life and you hear the power that's in the engine. So for the lost person, the law comes to him and arouses within him a desire to disobey the very law that's given to him. It's because of his fallen nature that that happens. Now the third thing Paul teaches us here about the law is that it kills our self-righteousness. And this comes out in verses 9, 10, and 11. He says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Now what does he mean by that? (laughs) I was once alive apart from the law. I've meditated on that, and this is what I believe Paul means. I believe he means something like this. Before the law came to me with conviction, I thought I was a really good person. I, I, th- I was blissfully ignorant of the pit of iniquity within my heart. And he's describing himself before his conversion in Philippians 3. As to the law, I was found blameless. But not in God's sight, right? Only in man's sight. So Paul at one time, before he was converted, he felt smug, he felt self-righteous, he felt self-confident when it came to his relationship with God. He thought he had kept the law. He thought he was alive in the sense of being approved by God or accepted by God because of his own righteousness. But he says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. I was once alive But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So how did Paul die? He's not talking about life and death in terms of physical life and physical death. It's something else entirely, right? We we know that instinctively from reading the passage. So how did he die? I believe he died to any hope that he could achieve salvation by his good works. He died to any thought of his own inherent goodness before God. He died to any dream of justifying himself by keeping God's law. All of that died when the commandment came to him. And then he says in verse 10, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. It says, This commandment, which was to result in life. I believe he's thinking back to Leviticus 18.5 here. Because that passage says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live, if he does them, I am the Lord. So Leviticus 18.5 seems to promise life for the person who keeps God's law. Now the only person who's ever done it is Jesus Christ. Jesus deserves life. Jesus earned life by his law keeping. Every single one else in this world who's ever lived has, has violated God's holy law. And so we forfeited life because of that. So Paul says, this commandment which was to result in life, I expected that I was going to earn life because of my law keeping. But then I realized I hadn't kept it. I failed it. So it proved to result in death for me. So Paul finally comes to his summary in verse 12. So then, here's the conclusion of the matter. The question, is the law sin, or is it somehow sinful? The answer, no, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Holy. That word means set apart. God's law is set apart from every other law. Now, we have all kinds of laws in the United States, don't we? Civil laws, driving laws, laws for everything. God's law is, is different from all of those laws because it's God's. And it reflects God's holy character. It's set apart from every other law in this world. So God's law is holy. It's also righteous. The word righteous means just. It's right. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's not wrong. It's right and it's just. And the third thing he tells us about this law is that it's good. And that's something that we don't consider very often. We think about the law. We think, okay, well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm sort of glad that God gave us his law. But we should be thrilled that God gave his law because it exposes our sin and it crushes our self-righteousness. Nobody is going to come to Christ for salvation until it exposes their sin and they realize they cannot earn heaven or work their way to heaven because of their good deeds. They need a savior. So the law, God uses the law in the unconverted person's life to bring him to a point where he sees his need for Jesus Christ. And that's good. Isn't that good? Because I, I would be just like Paul thinking, oh, as to the righteousness found in the law, I'm blameless. And thinking I'm going to heaven when I'm actually going to hell because something needs to expose what's going on within my heart and within my mind. The evil that lurks there that I don't really even recognize. So let's draw this out to, for some application today. First of all, the Christian. I believe the primary application for us as Christians is that we can learn that the law is a useful tool when it comes to our evangelism. It's a useful tool. Today, in contemporary Christianity in the United States, this is, it's, uh, people do not use the law usually as a tool in evangelism. What we usually do in the popular methods of evangelism is run straight to the love of God as fast as we can. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. He died for your sins on the cross. Come to Jesus. Now, no one's saying that's not true. That, that's good. That's Bible. But I think we're putting the cart before the horse. That person, why would they come to Christ if they're, if they're not thirsty? Why would they come to Christ if they're not hungry? Why would they come to Christ if they don't even know that they need Christ? Paul is teaching us that the law does a vital work which sort of prepares us to come to Christ. It gives us the desire to come to Christ. The, I, I believe there are probably thousands, multiple thousands of people. I'm sure of it. Probably hundreds, of, maybe millions. I don't know. There's lots of people in the United States who think they're going to heaven when they're not. And most of them base it on the fact that they believe that they're a good person and God certainly would not send a person who's got a good heart like them to hell. They don't see the evil lurking within them. They, they're not convicted of it. The, the person in our generation who's probably more responsible of bringing back the law as a useful tool in evangelism is Ray Comfort. At least he's the one I know anything about. He's actually from Australia or New Zealand, I think. Is that right? New Zealand. New Zealand, okay. Well, he's got this whole uh, 
um, Hell's Best Kept Secret and the Way of the Master, and he teaches how to, people how to go out on the streets or wherever they're at and use the law to bring people to Christ. And if you're not familiar with it, let me just give you a quick rundown. Um, he uses some really simple questions, which anybody can learn and, and use to try to bring the law to bear upon a person to show them that they need Christ. For example, a question. If you were to die today and stand before God, would you end up going to heaven or hell? Well, probably 99% are going to say, heaven, of course. I'm going to heaven. Okay. Well, let's just find out. Let's look at what God's standards are in the Bible and find out if that's the way it is. So you go to the Ten Commandments and you start asking them some of God's commandments. Like, well, have you ever told told a lie before? And almost everybody will admit that, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Um, have you told more than one? Yeah, I've told a lot of them in my lifetime. Well, what does that make you? What do you call a person who tells lies? A liar? Yep. Yep. Have you ever stolen anything? That's one of the commandments of God in Exodus chapter 20. Irrespective of the value of the thing that you have stolen. Yeah, I guess I've done that too. Well, what do you call a person who steals? A thief. So now you're a lying thief, right? Well, I guess, I guess so if you put it that way. <laughs> you know, have you always honored your mother and your father in everything they asked you to do? In Ephesians 6, Paul says to obey your parents is the same thing as to honor them. Have you always obeyed your parents? Well, if you haven't, you've broken that law. Um, have you ever committed adultery before? And if they say, no, no, I've never done that, we'll say, well, you have, have you ever w- looked on a woman, or if it's a woman, a man, to lust for them in your heart? Because Jesus said that's the spiritual intent of that law. And by the time you get down to, I don't know, six or seven of these various laws, the person's thinking, you're kidding. You mean, I'm really, I'm really in trouble with God? I, I thought I was good. I thought everything was fine. And so at that point... You could simply say this, if God were to judge you based on his law, would he find you guilty or innocent? Should be a simple question to answer, right? Well, guilty. Okay, would you then go to heaven or hell? Now this, at this point, they're probably going to try to squeeze out and say, yeah, I'd go to heaven because God forgives. God's merciful. But just say, if he based you alone on his law, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, I guess I would go to hell. Well, does that concern you? Does that concern you? If they say, no, it doesn't concern me at all, well, then there's no reason to give them the gospel. <laughs> because they, they have no interest in it, and they're not going to believe it if you tell it to them anyway. But if they say, yeah, that concerns me, because I can see now I'm guilty. And if God judges me with a righteous judgment, I'm lost. What can I do? Is there any way that I can find acceptance with God? Can, can God give me favor? And then they're ready for you to say, yes, I've got some really, really good news for you. The best news in the world. And then you can tell them, God loves sinners. And Christ died for sinners. Christ paid the debt that you have realized that you have. He paid the debt. And if you put your trust in him, that the debt is transferred from you to Christ and it's gone. Do you want to turn from your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King, your Lord today? But you see that the law does sort of a preparatory work to, to give the person 
the desire for Jesus Christ. So in our witnessing and in our evangelism, don't just completely um, leave the law out of your witnessing. Paul says God used it in his life to expose his sin and to kill his self-righteousness. And shouldn't we be concerned about exposing that person's sin if they're oblivious to it and killing their own self-righteousness so they can look away from themselves to Jesus Christ in order to be saved? So I would encourage you just to, to memorize a few simple questions that you can ask people as you're sharing Christ with them. Not as some kind of a formula that you have to go through every time. We don't use this as, as a formula, but, but the law is a tool, you might say, a tool that we can use to help people see their need for Christ. Well, what about the non-Christian? What, what would this passage have to say to someone who doesn't know Christ? And let me speak to you this morning. I don't know which one of you would say, yeah, I don't know the Lord. I'm not a believer yet. But if that's you, what does this passage teach you? I think the application for you would be go to Exodus chapter 20 and read it. And ask yourself as you're reading through those commands of God, have I obeyed these my whole life? You shall have no other gods before me. Has God, the true and living God of the Bible, always been your God that you've worshipped and served your whole life? Is that true? You shall not bear false witness. Have I always done that? Have I, have I always been truthful and honest in my dealings with everybody? Thou shall not steal. Have I ever stolen anything? Be honest with yourself. Have I broken this law or have I kept this law? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll have to admit, I've broken it. I'm guilty before God. What can be done for me? I need an atonement. I need something that can expunge my record. Something that can justify me before God and make things right again because I'm wrong with Him. And that leads you to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is God's answer to your problem. So take seriously God's law. Take seriously the fact that you have broken it and flee to Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Him and He'll save you. That's, I believe, the application for you if you don't know the Lord Jesus today. Come to Christ. Because God loves to save sinners. And He loves to save people like you and me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to the power of the law when your Spirit gets a hold of it and applies it to somebody. We pray that we would learn our, our lesson from that today. If, Lord, there are any here today that are lost, would you convict them of their sin? Would you show them that if they were to die today and stand before you, that they would be cast into hell to pay for their sins because they haven't trusted in Jesus to pay for them? Lord, whether that person is a child or a visitor, whoever they might be, would you reach them by your Holy Spirit? Or Lord, even those that are watching on Facebook Live or hearing this over the radio, we, we pray for them. If lost people are listening, Lord, convict them of their sin and bring them to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.